up our reading in verse 6, Isaiah chapter 2 and verse 6. For you have forsaken your people, the house of Jacob, because they are filled with eastern ways. They are soothsayers like the Philistines, and they are pleased with the children of foreigners. Their land is also full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. Now, when we turn to the scripture, the idea of light is very prominent. In Psalm 119, for example, the psalmist says, speaking to the Lord, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my ways. And then say the entrance of your word gives light. The sense of, of us being dependent on, on God's word as a light in the midst of, of darkness. In the New Testament, of course, Jesus describes himself as the light of the world in that memorable passage in John 9 where he's just given light to a blind man. He goes on then on many occasions to challenge his disciples to be lights. You are the light of the world, he says. A city built on a hill cannot be hidden. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. What I want to suggest is that the light of revelation, the light of God's word, focuses on, if you like, or spotlights three big issues in this passage. didn't read the, the, the whole chapter, but we can be referring to a part of it. Firstly, God's light shines on what we need to see but don't want to see. In other words, there's the light of conviction. Secondly, God's word shines on that which we could not at all see apart from his revelation, the, the light of, of prophecy and supernatural revelation. And thirdly, God's light shines on us to see how we respond to uh, all of this. In verse 6, the theme continues from the previous chapter of the indictment that God has on his people. In other words, these are the issues which God's people then, and I think if we're honest, us today, sometimes would rather not focus on. In verse 6, for example, they're convicted or challenged, or the light is shone into their, their lives, and they're challenged on being an influence, not for good among the pagan nations, but rather they've adopted pagan or, or worldly ways. It's very similar in Paul, in Romans 1, challenges many of his Jewish listeners. He says, the, uh, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. In verses 7 and 8, secondly, they're, they're challenged, or God's light is, is shone on this aspect uh, of their lives. Their, their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. They're full of horses, and uh, there's no end to their chariots. Are these bad things? Well, not necessarily. Ultimately, they're, they're gifts from God. 
But how are we meant to respond to God's goodness? Well, the fullness of God's blessing hasn't produced humble gratitude. Why? Because on to say in verse 8, their land is also full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands. Does God's blessing to you produce this response, how great God is? Or does God's blessing produce in you the response, how great I must be for all these blessings to come from God? In other words, does it produce worship of God or effectively worship of self? It will produce one or the other. Sometimes we need the light to shine, don't we, to see which it is. In Colossians 3, interestingly, in the New Testament, Paul compares covetousness with idolatry. Covetousness isn't having things. Covetousness is craving things, more things, even the things that God hasn't given us, and thereby they become our real gods. In verse 9, there's a, a very sobering light shone on this truth. People bow down, and each man humbles himself. And here he's talking about the, the formal worship that they're going through in the temple. Even as they are treasuring all these attitudes, pun intended, in their hearts. Therefore, do not forgive them. Forgiveness doesn't come on the basis of religious activity. Forgiveness comes on the basis of genuine repentance. In verse 10, the prophet says, Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. The suggestion here isn't that these will actually produce a real hiding place, but this is the, the attitude of, of sinners when confronted with conviction. The, the attitude isn't to run to the light, but to run from the light. A bit like some of those noxious creatures that you see when you lift up a stone and shine a light. They don't run to it, they, they run from it. The futility of trying to escape the Creator by hiding amongst His creation, it's echoed when we come to Revelation 6, verses 15 and 16, where they, the, the sinners, instead of repenting, call on the, the rocks to, to cover them and hide them. It's not unlike Adam and Eve. Remember when they heard the voice of God calling to them in the garden and they knew they'd sinned, did they fall on their knees and beg for repentance? No, it says they hid among the trees of the garden. They hid among the stuff rather than face the Creator. Let's be honest, isn't that sometimes what we need to be challenged with as well? Commenting on this section, the great 18th century Baptist pastor and commentator John Gill said, so for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty, he says they do this, lest he should pour out his wrath and vengeance on them and be a consuming fire to them. Didn't pull his punches, did he? <laughs> Before his glory and majesty, they will not be able to stand for this is to be understood not of a filial reverence of God, it's not the fear of the Lord that produces wisdom, but a servile fear for punishment. They don't want to face up to the consequences that will be demanded by genuine uh, repentance. And so uh, it goes on. 
when you come, for example, to verse uh, 16, it says, Upon all the ships of Tarshish, upon all the beautiful sloops, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone shall be exalted in that day, but idols he shall utterly abolish. You know, the story only ever ends in one way. You know, if we, if we enter into a, a spiritual arm wrestling contest with God, you know, you can bet the house because there's only going to be one result. Very often the question is how much pain there has to be in the meantime. So I haven't dwelt too much on the, the latter section because it's, it is repeating, albeit very painfully, some of the things that have been said already with regard to the state of God's people. And yet even as God's people in this section are, are called to face up to these issues that God's light is fearlessly uh, shining the light on. There's another light being shone simultaneously. And that's the light that we see in verses 1 to 5. Because what we see in verses 1 to 5 isn't God simply confronting his people with what they need to face up to. That is there. That is always the message of Scripture. But this light I think is a light that invites us not so much to look in as to look up and to look forward. Because this light says, and here is what God is certainly going to do. And it reminds us that even while we're confronted with what we should and shouldn't do, our performance in what we should or shouldn't do does not control what God is going to do. God's will and purpose stands and so the prophet here gives these same people with whom he's confronting with their, their present sins and failures a vision of the perfection and glory of God and what he's going to do with his people, not because of who they are, but in spite of who they are, in grace, in what he calls the latter days. It's introduced in verse 1 as the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw. You can't really see words, can you? But of course, what he's saying here is, I'm telling you in these words the vision that I saw. Very much like, you remember in Hebrews 1, where it says, in many and different ways, God spoke to our fathers in former times. So Isaiah, somehow, whether it was in a dream or a revelation, had this picture. And the picture uh, that God uses to communicate to him the wonder of what he's doing when the climax of history arrives and when the fullness of his plan is fully unfolded is that of a mountain. Now, Michael has reminded us that when we see the word mountain in the scripture, there's something we ought to remind ourselves of. It's one of the favorite themes that God uses as the meeting place between him and his people, as a place of worship. Many commentators, as we've been reminded, suggest that the Garden of Eden was on a mountain. When it comes to build a temple in Jerusalem, it's built on Mount Zion. You know, Jesus is transfigured on the mountain. The law is given on the mountain. 
a lot of mountains, aren't there? <laughs> the, the picture is repeated over and over and over and over again. Jesus is crucified on the hill of Calvary, the ultimate meeting place between God and man. So he says, now it shall come to pass in the latter days, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. So immediately, our eyes are literally lifted up to what God's plan and purpose is reaching towards with his people, and is to establish this exalted meeting place of, of fellowship and worship between him and them. Now, whilst these two lights, the light that's shining into God's people to convict them, and the light that's shining forward to God's plans for history are distinct, I believe they are related. How so? Because God, when he's convicting us, is not simply wrapping us over the knuckles. He's not simply saying, now you shouldn't do that, although he is saying that. He's saying, why in the world would you do that in the light of who I am and what I'm doing and what I want to do through you? In other words, he's not just rebuking us for the wrongdoing, but he's challenging us to look beyond the attractions of the gold and the silver and the horses to his plan and purpose for the, for the ages. And every so often in this prophecy, the eyes of the people are lifted to the great plans and purposes of God. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, the very same people that are being rebuked severely and rightly so in this prophecy. This is what you're, oops, this is what you're doing with your lives. But here's what God wants to do, and here's what God is ultimately going to do with and for and through his uh, people. And so we have the picture uh, of Judah and Jerusalem uh, being uh, turned into this uh, mountain, this dwelling place of God where he meets with his people and receives uh, their worship. He gives us a, a timeline. It shall come to pass in the latter days. The time when the Messiah will appear. The, the time when history will reach its climax. It's interesting in the, the, the revelation that, that, that Daniel explains in uh, Daniel uh, 2, which Michael read for us earlier on. The, the coming of the Messiah is again described and the, 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 his kingdom replacing all the earthly kingdoms is described as this, it starts off as a small stone which expands as a great mountain which fills the whole earth. And the timeline there is very clear. He, he gives us the various uh, uh, kingdoms that come and go. But in that last kingdom, which is very clearly the, the time of the, the Roman Empire, the Messiah is going to appear, and he's going to set up a kingdom which will never pass away. So the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and exalted above the hills. There is nothing that is ever going to have a preeminence like the kingdom of God. And so God's people are being challenged to look beyond the things that 
seem so important and in, in their own level are important, but to look to that which is preeminent and of the, the highest uh, importance. Because what's going to happen, and God is going to involve his people in this, is the, the climax of, of history. You remember in, in Genesis, the nations are, are scattered away in their disobedience when they try and, guess what, build a mountain. <laughs> they try and build a man-made mountain to reach God. And God says, no, that's not how it's done. And they're, they're scattered all over the earth. And for generations, there's no very obvious, that we know of, knowledge of God in the entire earth. And then God calls one man, Abraham, and he promises him, in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And here, the fulfillment of this prophecy is linked with what God is going to do in the latter days, in the, the sending of his son to set up his kingdom, and all the nations shall flow to it. Instead of the scattering out from the, the man-made mountain, you have the gathering in to God's mountain. We need to, to lift up our eyes and see what God is doing. Because what Isaiah is glimpsing here in a figurative form is our everyday experience. Do we appreciate it? I mean, the fact that there is a church here in Dundalk and hundreds of thousands of churches all over the world, and many of them composed of people of so many different nations, is the literal fulfillment of what we're reading here. We're living in the days that Isaiah is only glimpsing here afar off. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that in the second uh, iteration of this similar prophecy that God gives that's recorded in Daniel, it's not given actually initially to Daniel, it's given to a, a Gentile king. It's explained to him by Daniel, but the revelation comes initially to a Gentile king. That yes, his kingdom it's a great kingdom, but it's going to go when eventually it and all the other kingdoms will be replaced by the kingdom that will have no end. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of, of Jacob. The Gentiles are, are drawn to it. It's the fulfillment of that promise made initially to Abraham. It's that wonderful promise that the fulfillment of which Paul rejoices over in Ephesians 2, where he says, he has made out of the two, out of the Jews and the Gentiles, one new man having abolished the enmity in the flesh of his son. Aren't we so easily preoccupied with lesser things? What is silver and gold compared to this? Mere dross. Next, he describes that there will be a whole new relationship with the law. On Mount Sinai, the law, the law of course, is originally given to Israel. And even as it's given to them, they're breaking it. As Moses is coming down the mountain with the law at the bottom of the mountain, they're breaking it. Uh, and it shows that unresolved tension that's there in the old covenant between having the privilege of being the people to whom God's law is given and not having either the desire or the ability to live it out by and large. 
But now, not only will the law be given in this new covenant to believing Jews, but to multitudes of believing Gentiles. A vast multitude, John glimpses in Revelation, that no one can number out of every kindred and tribe and tongue and nation and people, even in Dundalk. <laughs> he will teach us his ways. And we shall walk in his paths. Note the certainty of it. This is, the, this is a new covenant relationship with the law, isn't it? Because the law isn't being carried by Moses on tables of stone to be broken as soon as it's received. The law of God is now written by regeneration on the hearts of God's people, never to be erased again. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. A whole new relationship now between the people of God and the law of God. In the, the good news of the gospel, we are blessed with the fact that all that we could not do and would not do in keeping the law, Jesus has done. The penalty for the broken law that should have fallen on us and deservedly would fall on us otherwise, he has taken it in our place. And through that, the miracle of new birth has taken place whereby we now love God's law. We now echo the words of David, oh, how I love your law. It's written uh, on our hearts. The miracle has taken place. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. Again, here is the idea of Judgment as the, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Again, in, in Daniel's vision much later on in the chapter, he has this vision of the Ancient of Days, which is clearly God, you know, who Israel knew was the, the sole judge of the universe. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Moses challenges God with uh, in the incident at Sodom. But now the Ancient of Days hands over judgment to the Son of Man the one who's going to institute this new kingdom, which starts as small as a stone and becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. And Jesus echoes this when we come to John 5. He says, for all the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. We are serving, we are privileged to be servants of the one to whom all judgment has been given. The one who is King of kings, and Lord of lords. And finally, the prophecy, prophecy focuses on some of the results of this. And, and, and the big theme here, of course, is peace. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning, pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. Now, needless to say, we're not yet at the full fulfillment of that. But that's what the full fulfillment of it is going to look like. Universal, eternal, irreversible peace. But we're on the process of getting there. Because in the new covenant, there is two great things achieved. And they parallel the two great commandments, if you think about it. There's peace established between mankind and God. And there's peace established between people. 
symbolically described by Paul in Ephesians 2, where he describes this peace or reconciliation between Jew and Gentile. They're now reconciled in one body by the cross of Jesus. Peace with God, peace with each other. And this peace is unstoppable. This peace eventually will fill the whole earth. Even as another of the prophets says, even as the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will cover the whole earth as the waters will cover uh, the sea. Do we see that yet? No, we don't. But to, to paraphrase Hebrews, but we see Jesus. Who for the glory set before him endured the cross, endured the shame, and is now seated at the right hand uh, of God. So peace is established between God and man and between men. The, the church, which is like a little oasis of peace in the midst of a dark, angry, bitter world, we're, we're meant to be a foretaste of what this universal peace will look like when it will surely come. And again, here's where these two focuses of light begin to overlap. Why are there wars among you? James challenges the early Christians. Because we covet stuff from each other. We're not satisfied with what God has blessed us with. So, so sometimes God's people, the people of Judah and Jerusalem, the people of Dundalk, are not focused on what God has done. He's reconciled us to himself. He's reconciled us to each other. But we, we begin to be focused on, well, she has this and why haven't I got it? Or he has got this and why haven't I got it? And so this passage challenges us to lift up our eyes, literally lift them up to this vision of the mountain of the Lord, established high and eternal, that surely is coming. And in one sense, has already arrived in the coming of Jesus. And that brings me briefly to the, the third point. The third light is this. We've had the light of conviction that shines and challenges us to face up to who we are in the light of what we should be. The light of uh, God's plan and purpose, which should inform who we are and what we should be. And having looked at both of these lights, the challenge goes out as it does here in verse 5. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It's a theme which is taken up over and over again, isn't it, in the New Testament, where Jesus says to the disciples, yes, I'm the light of the world, but in your relationship with me, I'm paraphrasing here, of course, you too are meant to be the light of the world. In fact, let your light so shine before men that they may see the difference I've made in your life because that's what our good works are. They're what he's prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And so glorify your Father who is in heaven. God has delivered us from darkness, Paul says, and translated us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Once you were darkness, he says to the Ephesians, but now you're light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Come, house of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let's not be scurrying around like those 
reprehensible creatures in the dark. But let's be lights in the world, glorifying our Father in heaven. And by being lights in the world, through that shining to the world, a light for this fullness of the kingdom, this kingdom which has already started in the coming of Jesus, this kingdom which we ourselves are part of, this transformed society that we already are, although the transformation is continuing. Let us, as it were, whet the spiritual appetite of the people around us to let go of the junk food of the world, if I can. I thought that looking at less. <laughs> to the, the banquet that the Lord has prepared for us. Let God's light shining inward do its work. Let God's light upward do its work. And then, people of God in Dundalk, come let us walk in the light of the Lord. Amen.